Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are the Father of Fathers, that uh, regardless of what our earthly father is like, you have shown us the true way. Lord God, we just pray uh, for the men of the church that we would be good uh, uh, representatives of you uh, uh, to those um, that we care for. And uh, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we would be uh, good at honouring those that you have uh, uh, put there to look out for us. Uh, Lord God, um, I pray that you'd open our ears uh, and our hearts um, as I speak and that what I say uh, would be helpful and encouraging and will build your church. Uh, Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, brilliant. So I wonder if uh, you've ever properly contemplated the life of the homeless. I'm not just talking about um, sort of feeling sorry for them. You know, you, you see them in the, the, the cold and the wet um, and you kind of uh, just feel a, a little pang of your conscience. I'm not even just talking about, you know, sort of giving out money even to the, uh, the big, big issue vendors uh, that we see around us. Um, I'm talking about properly sort of putting yourselves in their shoes or their bare feet, uh, as it were. Um, I'm talking about sort of really trying to process all the different struggles uh, uh, that, that they have to deal with, all the different uh, sort of battles they have to fight daily. Um, in Elam Pubush, uh, we've seen a, a, a few guys um, over the years that have uh, sort of become homeless through one reason or another. And, and I've always been uh, sort of profoundly struck uh, by the, the, the many difficult, difficult ways uh, difficulties they have to overcome you know as you talk to them you sort of realize uh, something of the ramifications of not having uh, uh, sort of somewhere to call uh, your home um, if uh, there's a um, where I go running in Buckham Park there is a um, there's a particular shelter um, and it's obviously a place where uh, uh, struggling people sort of when everything uh, goes wrong and that they have to uh, uh, sort of uh, leave where they're, they're living and, and sort of seek out some sort of shelter uh, that you find them um, in this place in Buckham Park and uh, you find these uh, homeless people having to perpetually worry about uh, sort of food uh, and water uh, and in our climate definitely in this British climate that shelter as well that becomes a really uh, uh, important uh, thing to have to deal with um, and and this place in Buckingham Park is really haunting because it has this rather uh, poor blue tarpaulin stretch you know it's uh, um, always there over there and there's this uh, small blackened campfire uh, with different sort of remnants of tin cans of stuff um, and there's this kind of shameful seclusion uh, away from civilization. You know, it, it's away from other people. It's away from other houses. It's away from all the amenities uh, of uh, where people normally uh, come together. And it's a, it's a very striking place. And uh, you sort of uh, uh, look at it and your, your heart just goes out to these uh, guys. And... There are just so many difficulties for the vagrant. Um, one of them, uh, sort of, uh, I've learned is that, that there's no safe space. You know, uh, we can often sort of come home after a bad day 
or uh, uh, when we're feeling sort of um, under attack and we can find sort of safety and seclusion in our own homes, you know, sort of lock the door, uh, pull the curtains and, and, and just feel a, a sense of uh, fortress, you know, uh, sort of a, a man's home is his castle. Uh, but, but that's not true if you're you're homeless wherever you are you are vulnerable to being moved on you're vulnerable to being harassed um, and you're vulnerable to having all your uh, all your belongings stolen there are all sorts of implications for not having somewhere secure to stay um, and beyond that there's uh, hygiene is, is hard work you know sort of uh, looking like the rest of civilization becomes harder and harder is that you don't have access to sort of uh, running water in the same way um, meaningful work you know uh, uh, work uh, that you can go do in an ongoing sense and that helps other people that becomes virtually impossible if you don't have a, a permanent address and and the idea of things getting better becomes seemingly more and more forlorn because there's no uh, 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 way to move forward there's nothing to sort of base uh, uh, sort of efforts on and you kind of live day to day um, and then there's the uh, the brutal fact um, and uh, this is sort of sort of particularly come clear if you sort of uh, uh, see sort of open house at night when uh, uh, when perhaps those people that aren't allowed to sleep there um, are sort of hanging around um, you end up hanging out with other homeless people um, and this means often that your your social group the people that you hang out with they um, are can be often sort of criminals uh, substance abusers the mentally ill uh, and the and the physically sick and, and and so you your your circles and your conversation and your point of reference just becomes these other people that are just troubled in all sorts of areas and it's a really miserable existence and it's one you you wouldn't wish on anyone now uh, you may think this is a little bit peculiar but one of the uh, few books that I've read a lot of times is a uh, George Orwell's uh, down and out in Paris and London and um, it's not just a, a fictional story it, it's a kind of a first-hand account of uh, his own uh, journey through these opulent cities um, he apparently uh, he fell ill in Paris the writer George Orwell um, he had all his money stolen um, and he was kind of reduced to destitution because he didn't have any way to pay his way and then he finds himself in poverty uh, in homelessness in Paris and London which are rich and abundant cities to those that can afford it um, and there is something really compelling about uh, reading George Orwell's uh, sort of observations um, and the sort of descriptions of what it is like to live without a penny to your name in the, like these, uh, uh, these urban centres um, and so I'm going to read uh, uh, just a little bit about it. Um, in this bit, he's uh, fortunate to actually have shelter, uh, but the sort of curse of being a vagrant is, is very much paramount in his mind. And it says, it says this. While we went on with the lodging house life, a squalid, eventless life of crushing boredom, 
For days together, there was nothing to do but sit in the underground kitchen reading yesterday's newspaper. It rained a great deal at this time and everyone who came in steamed so that the kitchen stank horribly. One's only excitement was the periodical tea and two slices. I do not know how many men are living this life in London. It must be thousands at least. As to uh, my friend Paddy, it was actually the best life he had known for the two years past. His interludes from tramping, the times when he had somehow laid hands on a few shillings, had all been like this. The tramping itself had been slightly worse. Listening to his whimpering voice, he was always whimpering when he was not eating. One realised what torture unemployment must be to him. People are wrong when they think that an unemployed man only worries about losing his wages. On the contrary, an illiterate man uh, with the work habit in his bones needs work even more than he needs money. An educated man can put up with enforced idleness, which is one of the worst evils of poverty. But a man like Paddy, with no means of filling up time, is as miserable out of work as a dog on the chain. That is why it is such nonsense to pretend that those who have come down in the world to be pity, are to be pitied above all others. The man who really merits pity is the man who has been down from the start and who faces poverty with a blank, resourceless mind. It was a dull time and little of it stays in my mind. You really have uh, a sense of the bleakness of these guys that had no work, had no money, and uh, was kind of sort of put up uh, by uh, um, sort of the, the bare uh, essentials of society. And uh, as we look at today's passage, and it is coming, I want us to bear in mind these reflections on homelessness, these reflections on the vulnerability, these reflections on the uh, just the hopelessness of the situation and the, the idleness and the, uh, uh, just the, the lack of anything happening worthwhile. Now, last week, I find it interesting, we actually explored the importance of Shabbat, this importance of rest. You know, it was in direct uh, um, uh, uh, sort of opposition to work, you know, uh, and we found that um, sort of work six days and then you rest on the seventh. And God put that into creation. Um, and the challenge for many of us is indeed to stop working. For us to stop being busy on one day a week. To stop uh, cooking. To stop fixing. To stop cleaning. Um, and to stop all the normal activities that fill our time. And to stop and rest. To stop and read, to stop and worship, to stop and play, to stop and pray. And the uh, challenge is, you know, we do it six days a week and, and it so often bleeds uh, into the seventh. And uh, uh, God, from the beginning, has been saying, you guys need to know what it is to rest. But the, but the corollary of this is that um, we should be spending kind of six days a week working, being productive. You see, it's a, a, a biblical truth 
that people have been created uh, to find purpose and activity six days out of seven. Listen to this rather um, interesting um, observation by uh, uh, Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians. It says this. I promise you we are going to get to the uh, gospel reading, but um, there's some various different thoughts I wanted to sort of lay down before we got there. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3, and it says this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you've received from us. So there's this work ethic uh, sort of baked into Paul's teaching that people should uh, uh, make and do stuff. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Paul worked as a tent maker to model this um, uh, habit of working and earning money and using that to buy the necessities of life. Uh, we did this uh, uh, to provide a model. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle and they are not busy. They are busy bodies. And we find this uh, contrast between uh, uh, people that are sort of working um, and are, are sort of productive. And then there's people uh, uh, that just make a, a, a fuss um, and, and go down the wrong paths. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you brothers, never tire of doing what is right. And we find this uh, pronouncement of uh, if you can work, do. And uh, obviously in our setting, um, there's the exceptions of sort of uh, uh, mums and uh, those with sort of severe health concerns. Uh, but uh, Paul would look out to his uh, sort of congregation in Thessalonica and, and say, if you can work, you should. And you shouldn't use an excuse not to. And so using our minds regularly in caring, in creating, in building, in planning, in maintaining, seems to be God's design for everyone. You know, we're all supposed to be doing that. And uh, if you're a mum, you can hear uh, uh, Paul say, you know, uh, it's good, all the work that you do. Um, and uh, that's part of God's design. Um, and so this scriptural observation of the importance of work, Paul's uh, observation that work is a necessary component of man's daily life. And that kind of connects, doesn't it, with what um, Orwell is observing. You know, the worst thing about poverty is is not having anything to do, having no purpose, having nothing to achieve day by day. And we find the two sort of connect uh, really well. So if you've been following our uh, church uh, Bible reading plan, uh, you'll have read Matthew chapter 20 yesterday um, and uh, having read 
all of Matthew, hopefully up to that point, you'll be aware that Jesus has this clear purpose in mind. He looks to Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David. He is looking to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And then he is resigned and uh, turned over to this function that he's been sent to earth for, for his own uh, torture and execution. And he has this in mind as he turns uh, uh, to the city. Um, and I wanted to sort of give you a, a lively feeling of uh, uh, Jesus's intentions um, and uh, his uh, purpose. And I, I want to go back to my uh, granddad's uh, Geneva Bible. Um, that has a, a, a sort of a, an old translation. I think it's, what was it, 1560 uh, edition. No, it's not an original uh, uh, copy. And um, it's got some uh, sort of uh, poignant words for a particular uh, verse. This is the uh, version of the Bible that King James I didn't like because it questioned uh, the uh, prominence and uh, God-given nature of monarchs and it questioned church hierarchy. And it was a, a, a sort of a, a bit of a, a rebellious book and a bit of a, a Republican's uh, book. And uh, so hopefully... Um, in this great tomb, I can find um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Um, it says this. Um, Luke chapter 9, verse... Um, yeah, here we go. And it came to pass when the days were accomplished. And there's a very... Uh, uh, great language here when it came to pass when the days had been accomplished uh, that he should be received he settled himself fully to go to Jerusalem and Luke gives us this um, this picture of Jesus looking at Jerusalem and making that determined purpose to head to it um, and we get this uh, sense of uh, Jesus's calling um, in going there. And uh, so it's in that context of Jesus uh, feeling the days have been accomplished, that it, uh, that destiny was about to come to pass, that he was to head to Jerusalem for his own death. Uh, and it is in that episode, in that journey to the city, um, that it occurs. And, and the story today is beautifully simple and, and we could spend all day um, sort of uh, uh, just sort of um, enjoying just the natural human drama and interaction that goes on but I think it's made all the more powerful because of these uh, uh, observations of who Jesus is where he was going and also uh, a little bit of what it means to be uh, a vagrant and a beggar so it says this in uh, Matthew chapter 20 Matthew chapter 20, if you've got a Bible, um, it says this in verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. 
Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and they followed him. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His mind is full um, of thoughts. His thoughts of his final words, of his torture, of his arrest, of his betrayal, of his death. And he leaves behind the infamous city of Jericho. Jericho uh, was the site of uh, Joshua's great victory, uh, of these uh, impenetrable walls coming down uh, uh, through sort of uh, uh, prayer and tumble um, trumpet blasts. Um, and from Jericho, there's only the 3,000 uh, foot climb up to the holy city, this royal city of David. And uh, on top of these thoughts of destiny, of the weight of history on his shoulders, there is this large crowd pressing him. There was no uh, uh, bodyguards. There was no uh, uh, sort of uh, um, sort of two meter uh, rule. Um, barriers there is just this crowd pressing in and i don't know if you've ever been to a crowd perhaps you remember uh sort of big church day or something but it can uh, uh be a stressful thing if you're trying to get somewhere and the crowd do their best to kind of inhibit any movement at all and uh through the crowd there is this conjecture running wild this is possibly messiah this is possibly this carpenter's son is the long-awaited saviour, the person who's going to rescue um, uh, Israel. He is the one who's going to restore the kingdom of God. And it seems inevitable that this unruly mob, this uh, group of people uh, who uh, um, weren't sort of governed by sort of uh, mere rules of uh, uh, pleasantry, and politeness that there were all sorts of questions being fired out all sorts of accusations because that is what the gospel gives us you know these people sort of hurling these different things at Jesus saying what about this what about this and uh, so the pressure on Jesus here in his divine calling uh, would have been enormous the crowds pressing in his destiny to want to get to his disciples often being confused and his death awaiting him amongst all these internal thoughts, all these external pressures, Jesus discerns two forlorn beggars at the roadside. I wonder how good we are at seeing other people's misfortune while we are preoccupied. It seems to me uh, that Jesus, who is our model, does very well at this. These two guys... Um, would have deliberately lined the street in this place. Um, it would have carried the pilgrims from Jericho, kind of the, uh, the, the last uh, place up to uh, the city. Um, and it was a place that they could expect uh, sort of charity and arms being given. You know, these pilgrims going up to worship God, they would have been uh, sort of full of the thoughts of this journey. 
and uh, their maker. And these beggars could expect uh, perhaps a good turnover. And so these guys would normally have cried out to these intentional worshippers going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And they would have been given sort of bronze and silver coins, which um, this is what they would uh, have been able to sort of buy food and shelter with. However, something different happens here, doesn't it? Um, they seem to know something about Jesus. Maybe they knew someone that had already met him. Maybe they knew someone that had already been touched by him. Maybe they known the Nazarene to have ministered to one of their own. Whatever their reason, whatever their backstory, we um, hear them cry out in the text, Kyrios, Huis David. We find this Lord, Son of David. We find this uh, uh, acclamation that, that, that Jesus is worthy of respect and honour. And he comes from this exalted line of King David, which the Messiah was expected to come from. In the Matthew's Gospel, already we have found this uh, title of Son of David come about again and again. And it's used to confess that uh, Jesus isn't just a carpenter's son, but he's the long-promised descendant of David. And it was he that would bring salvation. So it's kind of confession of Jesus' uh, messiahship. And so these humble beggars at the roadside, you know, not got two pennies to rub together. They look at this man, this man just walking in the mud and the dust along with everyone else. And they recognise him as someone special. And what do they do? They ask boldly. Have you ever noticed this is a feature of father, son and spirit? We are, yes, invited to honour their authority and power. We are invited uh, to do this with praise and worship, yes. But we're also invited to honour their authority and power by coming regularly in prayer. By coming regularly in petition. By coupling, coming regularly in request. Jesus again and again encourages people, ask what you want. God, your Father, will hear you and respond well. I don't know if uh, you know the Lord's Prayer, but it's something we've talked to our kids. And the Lord's Prayer is full of requests, full of us coming before God and, and uh, laying down the things that we need for him to hear. This Trinity that we worship is not some imperious or impervious deity that we are simply directed to fall down and honour and uh, worship but we are invited into a relationship and we are encouraged to say what's on our hearts to say what pressing needs we feel to say uh, uh, what is going on in our lives that could do with his intervention and this combina combination of the power to work and the loving heart I think is one of the reasons that God has revealed himself as Abba to us, as Father to us. And uh, this observation is uh, uh, why we honour the men in our congregation uh, this morning on, on Father's Day. You see, each one is trying in his own way to copy this Father's heart of, of compassion and ambition. 
to serve people uh, um, strongly and uh, selflessly. Now, this idea of uh, fathers can be a hard one, especially if our own earthly dad um, has uh, sort of not lived up uh, uh, to uh, what we could expect. Um, and so I just wanted to read a, a few thoughts on the fatherhood of God uh, written uh, by a guy who was sort of who is writing into housing estate context, who have seen lots of people that struggle with the idea of a good father. So it says this, we have all had different experiences of fathers and these can shape our view of God. If your dad was not good, it is possible that when you think of God the father, you may perhaps only subconsciously view God the way you viewed your dad. If your dad never listened to you, then you may think that God doesn't listen to you. If your dad never protected you, then you may think God will not keep you safe. If your dad was never around for you, then you may think God will not be there for you. If we judge God by our experience of fatherhood, we can miss out on the wonderful experience of knowing God as our father. You see, God the Father has an eternal relationship of perfect love with God the Son. Wonderfully, Jesus came to earth so that we can come into this relationship Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ comes into this perfect relationship. If you put your faith in Christ, then you are adopted by God the Father. God the Father loves you with the same perfect love that he has for his son, Jesus. God is a father who seeks us out. Maybe you feel your dad ignored you. Maybe he was out at work all the time or engrossed in TV. But God the Father seeks people out. In Ezekiel, uh, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. God is a father who welcomes us. Maybe you feel your dad never really accepted you or was rarely pleased with you. But God the Father's great forgiveness and welcome are seen in the parable of the prodigal son maybe your dad was stern and harsh with you god sent his son to take the judgment we deserve on the cross in christ god accepts us and delights in us god is a father who cares for us maybe you feel like your dad abandoned you uh, psalm 27 says for my father and my mother have forsaken me but the lord will, will but the lord will take me in God doesn't turn away anyone who comes to him. Maybe your dad didn't provide for you, but Jesus says our heavenly father gives us good gifts. God is a father who treasures us. Maybe you feel your dad was disappointed in you, that you were never special to him. God calls his people his treasured possession. God is a father who loves us. Maybe you feel like your dad never really loved you. How great is the love the father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, says 1 John 3, 1. How much does God love us? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, John 3, 16. God is a father to the fatherless, Psalm 68, verse 5. If you ever knew your dad or he was, if you never knew your dad or he wasn't around much or wasn't good to you, then you may feel like you were fathers. But if you turn to God, then he will adopt you and make up for your absent or bad dad. 
Your Father God will never fail you or lie to you. He will always show compassion to you. He heal our, heals our hurts and turns our sadness into gladness. He's happy with us when we do what is right and forgives us when we do what is wrong. Hopefully some of those points were helpful. Hopefully some of those points sort of cleared the way uh, for honouring God for who he is as father. And um, hopefully it sort of makes today's story a little clearer as Jesus springs into action. So the crowd look at these two blind beggars. They are at the bottom of society. They are smelly. They look work shy. They're seen as cursed and they are regarded as having no importance in uh, uh, civilization. And so the masses turn to these rude individuals, these too good, uh, uh, good for nothings. And the masses hushes them and shut, shushes them and shuts them down. Shut up. Jesus is amazing and you are not worth his time. I wonder if you felt someone's ever said that to you. You see, these people in the crowd, they are used to a rule uh, where the good and the will of the majority prospers, where people like beggars are not given any prominence at all. But Jesus' kingdom is different. His Father's kingdom is different. Where Jesus is king, the individual matters. Every individual, especially the marginalised, especially the insignificant, especially those that have been overlooked by everyone else. It seems these blind men can see who Jesus is far more clearly than the seeing folk. They know the quality of uh, God's kingdom. They know the values of Jesus. They know uh, what uh, this new regime is going to look like. And so they raise their voices more persistently, even as the crowd possibly looks aggressive towards them to tell them to shut up. They shout all the more louder because they have confidence in God. Being blind, being poor and being vulnerable. This was a brave and bold thing to do. They overrode all their natural concerns for their own security and safety. And they shouted all the louder because they saw in Jesus something different. And so, despite his mission, despite his looming death, despite the pressure of the crowd, Jesus stops for these two worthless individuals at the side of the road. And he invites these wretched men to be clearer. How should the son of David illustrate his mercy to you? What do you want from God? There is this invitation as there always is. Uh, I care for you. Tell me what is going on. And in reply, prefixed with this term of Lord, these vagabonds explain, we want to see of all the things that they could have asked for. This was the most pressing 
concerned. Their blindness just wasn't an inconvenience. You know, people in our society uh, can operate with a degree of um, sort of uh, uh, impairment in their eyes. Okay. But blindness for them was absolutely cataclysmic. It stopped them from meaningful work. It stopped them from raising a family well. It stopped them finding a home. It stopped them participating in society in all manner of ways. Theirs was all the evils that George Orwell has seen firsthand and had written about. Theirs was the life of mundane existence. Theirs is the life of looking only at yesterday's newspaper. Theirs uh, was wondering when the next bit of food. Theirs was an empty stomach. Theirs was a uh, uh, feeling of no value in society. And Jesus, the uh, exact copy of his father, turns to them in love. And I think he smiles. He pushes through the shocked crowd and he reaches out and he touches these unfortunate souls on the very place um, that was the source of their curse. The thing that had stopped them uh, doing all the things they dreamed of. And miraculously, most wonderfully, most graciously, their eyes were made alive again. This miracle was like the phenomenon that had already gone inside. They had already had their eyes of their heart open so that they could see who Jesus was. And now their physical eyes had followed suit. They had confessed Jesus as Lord and now they could see him as well. And without pause, without hesitation, they take everything in. And with this a uh, new sense added to them. This ability to see now there. What do they do? What does scripture tell us uh, that they get up to? What would you do if you were blind and suddenly could see again? What would be your priority? These two, we are told, promptly follow Jesus. As we come to the end... I want us to see the love of the Father, the value that he puts on each and every one of us in his kingdom. I want us to uh, contemplate his power to work wonders and this call to follow his son. And as I close, I just want to read a rephrasing of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, um, I want to take the uh, uh, words of this uh, uh, old New York pastor and, and hear what he says it means uh, for these two beggars to follow Jesus. It says this. Why did Jesus die for us? What was Jesus getting out of it? Remember. He already had a community of joy, glory and love. He didn't need us. So what benefit did he derive from this? Not a thing. 
And that means that when he came into the world and died on the cross to deal with our sins, he was circling and serving us. I have given them the glory that you gave me, John 17. He began to do with us what he'd been doing with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He centres upon us, loving us without benefit to himself. If the beauty of what Jesus did moves you, this is the first step towards getting out of your own self-centeredness and fear into a trust relationship with him. When Jesus died for you, he was, as it were, inviting you into this dance. He invites you to begin centering everything in your life on him, even as he has given himself for you. If you respond to him, all your relationships will begin to heal. Sin is centering your identity on anything but God. But we give ourselves only to relationships and pursuits that build us up and bolster our efforts at self-justification and self-creation. But this leads us to disdain and to look down on those who do not have the same accomplishments or identity markers. However, when we discern Jesus moving forward, moving towards us and encircling us with an infinite self-giving love, we are invited to put our whole lives on a whole new foundation. We can make him the new centre of our lives and stop trying to be our own saviour and lord. We can accept both his challenge to recognise ourselves as sinners in need of his salvation and his renewing love as the new basis of our identity. Then we don't need to prove ourselves to others. We won't need to use others to bolster our fragile sense of pride and self-worth. And we will be enabled to move out towards others as Jesus has moved towards us. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation but of all being. For the eternal word has also given himself in sacrifice. When he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in the glory and gladness, from before the foundation of the world. From the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated and... By that abdication it becomes more truly self. To be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so on forever. And this is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. That fierce imprisonment in the self. Self-giving is absolute reality. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to call you Father. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you for this story of even on his journey to where he was going to be crucified, that he had time for two people that no one else had time for. That they asked for mercy and he gave them healing. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be good at knowing you, Father. 
that we would be good at asking for mercy and that we would be good at following Jesus. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.